Hey folks, this is Jesse Cope, back with another episode of the American Soul Podcast. Hope y'all are doing well, wherever y'all are, whatever part of the day you're in. Sure to appreciate y'all joining me. For those of y'all that continue to share the podcast, thank you. I'm ever grateful for that and humbled by it. It continues to grow. And I just have to thank y'all for it. And as uncomfortable as I am with this, which says more about me than anything else, just take a minute to tell God thank you for the ability to do the podcast and for the people that listen. We'll get going today. I'm sure y'all can tell by the background music that we're in a different spot or the lack thereof. Every once in a while that happens. And for those of y'all that, which quite a few of y'all have told me how much y'all enjoy the background noises, I apologize. Sometimes life just kind of happens and we have to plug a podcast in where we can. So no dogs, no turkeys or chickens or guineas, although that might be a blessing in disguise. And uh, no cicadas which are still with us because the heat is still oppressive. Nothing much to report on the garden, except that if I don't get out there and do a little bit of tilling, the grass is going to take over everything. So we're going to go back into this series on Churchill and probably be in this series for another three or four days. As we go through this, we're going to talk about four or five little snippets out of this biography. This biography is by a man named Manchester. It's second biography in a, or second book in a trilogy. This one is titled Alone, uh, and rightfully so. And it's great biography if you like it. Can't recommend it enough. You can pick it up at Barnes & Noble or Half Price Books, Amazon, a number of places. When we're going through this, if you would, I'd really like y'all to think about the similarities, and I'm going to try and highlight them, but just, just in your own mind, that you hear between the 1930s British citizens and American citizens today, a large percentage of us that claim to be patriotic, Christian, conservative, and then also look at the the similarities between 1930s German citizens and the modern American leftist citizens that we see today. And that's really, that's really the connection. We're going to talk about the leaders primarily, well, not primarily, but we're going to, we're going to talk about the leaders a lot, but really look at the, at the mental state of those groups and then think about today because I think the comparison is striking. And I, 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 that, to me, when I talk about dark days coming in, those of y'all that have listed, listened to the podcast for the last year plus, I've said that frequently and, and openly. I, I think we have a fight coming. I think there, there's some ways to avoid it still. But this is one of the most telling indicators to me is, is the mentality the priorities, the actions of the common everyday citizen far more 
than the the national political and cultural leaders. We'll get into it, see how far we make it. I'm not going to really try and rush through it. And if we don't get to one today, then we'll push it back. As I said, we're going to keep doing this series for probably another three or four days. So, so this is middle of the 1930s. All of these quotes come from the middle to the, the latter end, you know, 36, 38 in there. And so Churchill was really ostracized. He was really alone, which is why the title of the book is so relevant. Politically, he had made a stand on a issue that was not politically correct, and, and he really was punished for it politically. Uh, he continued to be elected by his constituents, but even in his own party, uh, friends, allies abandoned him. And it was really a tough time for him because he had been at the height of power. Uh, at, really, people thought he was going to be the prime minister a couple times. And and really, now he was just, it looked like he was just down and out. And one of the things is, is he ha- he was laser focused on Hitler more than Mussolini, more than communism, uh, Stalinist Russia. And he knew that those were dangerous, but but he knew, as we used to say in the Marine Corps, that the closest alligator to the boat was Hitler and and Nazi Germany. And he really was he was laughed at, as you'll see in just a second. So we're going to start here. Winston Churchill, Churchill's talking to the House. Winston told the House that England's neglected defenses were too shaky for her to stand alone against the pollinating, if I said that right, Reich and the lands it dominated over an area inhabited perhaps by 200 million people, Nazism and all it involves is moving on toward absolute control. Even a rearmament crash program would be inadequate. Britain, he said, needed allies. The house was alert. They knew where Winston's line of thought was leading, and a few catcalls were heard from Tory backbenchers. He said quickly, I know that some of my honorable friends on this side of the house will laugh when I offer them this advice. I say, laugh, but listen. I feel this a lot, folks, uh, and, you know, you're never going to agree with everything I say here on the podcast, and that's that's fine. Uh, we talk about that often. I, I dare say, for those of y'all that listen that are married, you know that even your most intimate friend in the entire world, y'all don't agree on everything about and and I want y'all to think about the things that I say and the feedback that y'all give is is great. And and sometimes I think y'all probably kind of chuckle and laugh at what I say and, and think I'm being melodramatic, and that's fine. I just would reiterate what, what Churchill said here. Laugh, that's okay. You're not going to hurt my feelings, especially since I can't hear you laugh right now. But listen. Churchill went on talking about the danger that these countries in Europe were in. And and the, the setting here is that Austria had fallen under Nazi Germany and really in kind of a despicable way, as, as they all, all these countries did really when you get into it. But, well, he said each of the remaining countries around there faced a simple choice to submit like Austria or else to take effective measures while time remains to ward off the danger and 
if it cannot be warded off, to cope with it. You know, here's the laugh but listen part. There's no reconciliation in our country between different Americans when we don't share at least a, a small group of core values. And, and the door to turn this around without a fight is rapidly closing and, and has been for a while, but I think more so now. And so, you know, there's a chance as, as Hitler, I mean, as, as Churchill said here, to kind of to ward off this danger we have some time left, but, and if it can't be warded off, if we do have a fight coming, then we need to talk about how to cope with it, how to deal with it. Churchill knew that restoring the balance of power, however practical, reasonable, and even essential, would not in itself satisfy a British public still haunted by the memory of a million British corpse, corpses in the trenches. Winston believed in statecraft on a higher level, and he believed the British public could not or could be swayed at this level. He insisted that there must be a moral basis for British rearmament and that foreign policy only on those terms could the British people be united. Parliament could, on this basis, procure their wholehearted action and, Churchill typically included America in his plan, stir the English-speaking people throughout the world. Meantime, he argued for the vital encirclement of the Third Reich, treaties binding Europe's Western democracies and the Danube states in a united front would turn back German aggression and England would regain the security she had lost in 1914. He closed, if a number of states were assembled around Great Britain and France in a solemn treaty for mutual defense against aggression, if they had their forces marshaled in what you may call a grand alliance, and if all this rested, as it can honorably rest, upon the covenant of the League of Nations, in pursuance of all the purposes and ideals of the League of Nations, if it were sustained, as it would be, by the moral sense of the world, and if it were done in the year 1938, and believe me, it may be the last chance there will be for doing it, then I say that you might even now arrest this approaching war. Then perhaps the curse which overhangs Europe would pass away. Then perhaps the ferocious passions which now grip a great people would turn inwards and not outwards. And in an internal rather than an external explosion. And mankind would be spared the deadly ordeal toward which we have been sagging and sliding month by month. Before we cast away this hope, this cause, and this plan, which I do not at all disguise as an element of risk, let those who wish to reject it ponder well and earnestly upon what will happen to us if, when all else has been thrown to the wolves, we are left to face our fate alone. One of the things in the Marine Corps that was always harped on for young officers and staff and COs. When you brought a problem to the CO, to the commanding officer, you needed to bring a solution. It might not be a good solution. Uh, it might not be the best solution. And if you could bring more than one possible solution, that was even better. Three was always, you know, 
Marine Corps loved it. Well, you got, you got to bring this many. You got to bring three to this and two to this. So if I remember correctly, three was always, you always wanted to try and bring three possible solutions to the CO when you brought them a problem. Uh, I, I don't claim to be a great thinker or leader or, or anything else, folks. I really, I feel like I'm just, just kind of a simple man here who uses logic. And logically, you can't have two groups of people that have completely differing core values coexist in peace. It's just impossible. One or the other is going to have to take over, and, and that can either be through submission of, of, of the one to the other, or it can be through, you know, through, through choice, or it can be through submission after a fight. But you, you cannot have two diametrically opposed sets of values coexist or be reconciled. It just doesn't happen. It's not logical and, and we're foolish to continue down that path. And, and, you know, going back to this first part up here that Churchill talked about this moral basis, he knew that he had to have a moral argument for this. And, and that's the deal here, folks. The, and we talk about this often, the whole idea of, of fiscally conservative but socially liberal. It's just it's not it's not realistic. It's it's a pipe dream. Because at some point, if you have liberal morals or, or however that you say that, uh, you're going to cut corners fiscally. One day you're going to go, well, you know, I don't have to do everything today on up and up. I can kind of cut corners here, and do a little bit here. And before you know it, you'll be exactly back where you would have been with no morals at all, which is which is where you really start when you say, I, I'm, you know, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. And and so, you know, Churchill knew that he had to have that they had to put forward this this argument for rearmament on on a moral basis, and you know the moral idea of defending the weak, defending the widow and the orphan, the poor and the homeless, of of defending those who couldn't defend themselves, and and I'll say the same thing in, in a different way, a worse way, a poorer way, probably, but. You know, every single core value of the left, every single one, folks, without exception, hurts the least of these, hurts the poor and needy, hurts the widow and the orphan, every single one. And so if you want to talk about a moral basis, right, and, and the second part of his little speech there talking about this grand alliance, think about what would have happened in 1947 with the decision of, of separation of church and state internally as a country or in the Roe v. Wade decision if five, 10, 15 states had gotten together and said, you know what? Uh, no, we're not going to kick God out of our education of our children. We're not going to kick God out of our institutions because we are historically easily Easily, if y'all have listened to this podcast for any length of time, easily provable based on the teachings of Christ, a Christian republic, or the Roe v. Wade, if, if they had gotten together and said, no, absolutely not. We're not going to abide by murdering children as a, as a quote, right, unquote. We're not going to allow mothers to make a decision to kill their own children based on the vast, 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 vast majority of the time convenience. No, 
How different might our country, how much stronger, better, more able to handle the external threats like Muslim terrorism, China, Iran, North Korea, how much better might we be able to help those in need? So I tie that back in. You know, our founders, our founders got together when when the king and parliament kicked them out of every possible area of control of the 13 colonies, they got together on their own. What's to keep us? You know, Churchill talked about a league of nations combining to stand up against the evil of Germany. What's to keep us today from doing that? I, I don't offer that as a perfect solution, folks. I don't offer it as the best solution. I certainly don't offer it as a complete thought without any need for discussion or debate. I just offer it as a a possible solution. And let me hammer this home right now. I am 100% of the mindset of Lincoln and Grant. I give no thought or no credence to the idea of secession at all. Uh, That's, in my opinion, both a cowardly way out and a disastrous way out at the same time. So just in case... I think I've got time for one more. I won't make it through all of them today, and that's okay. Uh, But we will get through one more little section. A sense of danger and anxiety. This is a quote from uh, one of the lords during the same time frame. This is not a quote by Churchill. A sense of danger and anxiety hangs over us like a pall. Hitler has completely collared Austria. No question of an ankylos, just complete absorption. Later on, this was an entry in this uh, Lord, I think it was Nicholson or Boothby or something like that, uh, their journal or whatever. Later in the same entry, he noted without dissent a colleague's argument that the government have betrayed the country and that the Tories think only of the red, the communist danger, and let the empire slide. I am in grave doubts as to my own position. How can I continue to support a government like this? Looking back, Lord Boothby damned sheep and shepherds alike. From 1935 to 1939, I watched political leaders of Britain in government and in opposition at pretty close quarters, and I reached the conclusion, which I have not since changed, that with only two exceptions, Winston Churchill and Leopold Amory, they were all frightened men. On four occasions, Hitler and his gang of bloody murderers could have been brought down and a second world war averted by an ultimatum. Every time we failed to do it. And four times is a lot. The reasons for it, I'm afraid, can only be ascribed to a squalid combination of cowardice and greed and the British ministers responsible instead of being promoted should have been impeached. We have American citizens today, folks, about half of us who are indifferent to the left. We claim that we really care about it, but uh, we don't change our personal lives. We don't make any fundamental changes. And and we've really gone on along with it. You know, as long as we can get back to quote unquote normal, you know, as long as the pendulum swings back to the right, even if it's farther to the left, we sit back down and we're satisfied and we say peace, peace at all cost, peace. 
And then we've got another about half of the population of American citizens that are openly supportive, voting for, giving financial aid to the just godless evil values of the left. And and it's the citizens, folks, both in the 30s, the British citizens who allowed their politicians to act like that, and the German citizens who encouraged and allowed Hitler to get to power in the first place, and us today as citizens, are we not more to blame than the national political leaders and cultural leaders? Are we not more responsible? Is the power not ours to have stood up at some point over the last 80 years and said, no, this is not right, no more? I have my own answer for that. I'm going to leave y'all to find your own answer for that. We didn't get to a few things today, but I've run quite over, so I'm going to leave y'all alone. I sure do appreciate you joining me, giving me some of your time. God bless y'all. God bless your families. God bless America. We'll talk to y'all again real soon. Looking forward to it.